Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, a good friend of mine wrote a prayer in response to um, all the continued tragedies that are happening in this world. And I want it to be our, our pastoral prayer for this morning before we jump into our scripture. So you bow your heads and pray with me. This prayer is a friend named Josh Spate. God, we are not okay today. We had selfishly hoped to find a new normal, but perhaps that was asking too much of ourselves. Another unspeakable tragedy has happened, this time in Nice, France. Again, we watch our phones and on our computers and on our televisions as innocent people die at the hands of others. This time, more than 80 lives have been taken through senseless violence. This time, more than 50 children are hospitalized, fighting for their lives instead of remembering the joy of watching fireworks with friends and family. We're not okay. They are not okay. Our world is not okay. I am not okay. God, we're broken. And these past few days and weeks have reminded us that sin and evil are real, that separation from you is not a concept to study, but the truth that cannot be ignored. We have been reminded again that some people are not looking for anything that is reasonable, logical, or rational. They just want to watch the world burn. We are not okay. They are not okay. Our world is not okay. I am not okay. So we turn to one another. We turn to you, O Lord. Out of the depths of our crying, say to each other that we are not okay. And we are trying to hear the words first read to the church in Corinth, the words meant to offer hope. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. The greatest of these is love. Though our faith and hope may be a little weary, we trust that love will be the greatest. We trust that your love, your perfect love, will sustain us and carry us through even though we are not okay. God, we need you. We are tired of not being okay. They are tired of not being okay. Our world is tired of not being okay. Hear our cries, O Lord. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hears us and abides with us. All these things we ask in his name. Amen. Take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2. And apologize in advance, I get a little bit of a head cold, and so if I start hacking everywhere, I'll make sure to do it right into the microphone so it resounds on all four corners of these walls. Now, the Hebrew Scriptures, just a little quick biblical note to you, Hebrew Scriptures are broken up into three parts. Uh, the first part is known as the Torah, the law. The second part is known as the Navim, or the prophets. And the third, third is known as the Ketavim, or writings, sometimes called wisdom literature. And the Ketavim is where we will spend some of our time 
time in the next few weeks. It includes books like Proverbs and Job, uh, the sensual song of songs that we'll get to here shortly. And then this fun-filled 12-chapter book called Ecclesiastes. The book's authorship has, has been historically credited to Solomon, mainly because the opening line is the words of Coeleth, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, who would that be? It would be Solomon. And so this book is either fully written by Solomon, parts of it are written by him, or it was just written in his honor. And it's quite a complicated book. As one author put it best, each time we open Ecclesiastes, we have to cope again with its style, track down its arguments, and decode its imagery. It's quite a complicated book. And also, well, let's just let the opening line speak for itself. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Wow, this is starting off really exciting, isn't it? What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye has never seen enough of seeing, nor the ear its filling of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, there is something new. It was here already, long ago. It has been here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. If you thought the book of Lamentations that Jeremy preached on a couple months ago was depressing, Ecclesiastes is his pessimistic brother. That's just the fun of this scripture. Honestly, some big biblical experts over the last several thousand years have even wanted to dismiss the book from the canon of scripture altogether because as if we had time to, we would see that its theology contradicts the theology of the Bible. It has an extremely humanistic perspective of life. The book can all be summed up in one word, meaningless. It's the Hebrew word hebel, which means vanity or breath or vapor. Its translations can be echoes, if you remember back from our series on the book of James, where James writes this, Why? Do you even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. You can also translate Hebel to mean substance or nothingness or emptiness or absolute absurdity. And so meaningless. And as if we didn't get that everything was meaningless from what the author said, the author then goes down a checklist of things they find meaningless, saying things like life is meaningless. Solomon will go on to write that pleasure is meaningless. We need to recall that this is the wealthiest king in Israel's history. Solomon had a wealth that went beyond measure, and he said, pleasure is meaningless. He said, I denied my eyes nothing I desired. I refused my heart to no pleasure, but everything is meaningless, he says. He goes on to write, foolishness is meaningless. Well, of course, yeah, foolishness is meaningless. But then he also writes that wisdom is meaningless. Because when we gain more wisdom, we gain more knowledge and makes us more sad in this world. It's a completely depressing book. And then he asks the question about toil. And he goes on to say that toil is meaningless. All 
his hard work, all his hard labor, it's all meaningless. Asking the question, yet when I surveyed all my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything is meaningless. A chasing after a wind, nothing was gained under the sun. This is coming from the wealthiest king in Israel's history. And all this, all the riches, all the pleasure, all of these things, he says, it's meaningless. He goes on to write, whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth will never be satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and everyone who comes that way also departs that way. So take a look at the beginning of a generation and end of a generation and the generation to come. He says, look at the great streams that flow into the sea and back into the streams. It's all repetitive. It's all meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. And Solomon is trying to fight against his system and the world system he's living in. And he's learning and trying to accept and accomplish all that he has. And he looks at his great empire, this great thing that he has built. Even the world acclaims to Solomon's riches. And all this, he says, everything is meaningless. I read an article recently um, that it was entitled Proof That Life Is Meaningless, and it gives nine solid reasons behind meaninglessness, Uh, and I thought this would be kind of funny to share with you. It says, number one, this shows that life is meaningless. Taylor Swift has more Twitter followers than the entire population of Canada. The insane clown posse followers known as Juggalos outnumber the polar bear population of the world children of the 90s would get that one apparently guy fiari the celebrity chef has the same number of new york times bestsellers as kurt vonnegut the engagement ring that kanye west gave to kim kardashian is estimated worth eight million dollars that's the total net worth of the successful actress emma stone maybe this is my favorite the backstreet boys have a cruise but nsync doesn't Writer and director Michael Bay was given a $150 million budget to recreate Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's the most, uh, that's more than the entire gross domestic product of a number of nations. Two and a Half Men has the same number of episodes as Arrested Development, Veronica Mars, Party Down, Freaks and Geeks, and Firefly combined. That's an atrocity if you know those shows. And maybe the most depressing fact of them all, Justin Bieber will get to go to space and you won't get to. Crucify me, but I kind of agree with Ecclesiastes. This has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a card-carrying member of the Global Cynic Association. Um, But when we take a tremendous step back from our society... We see all the people that they're bending their lives around is, is meaninglessness. It's all about semantics, really, because you can substitute the word pleasure for things in life that we have called comfort and security and fulfillment. We seek pleasure and find foods and exercise and entertainment and relaxation and physical interaction with others and friendships and projects around the house and vacations. We seek security in living in the best neighborhoods with the best security packages with our dependence on firearms. And of course, there's nothing wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with security. There's nothing wrong with fulfillment. But do we ever stop and consider how we achieve these things? The means. At what cost? At the detriment of whom else? At the detriment of ourselves. 
We too are beasts of burden when it comes to work and labor and toil. The average American works a 47-hour work week. Four in ten Americans work 50-plus hours a week. And so we pour ourselves into our careers. We pursue that next position in that next company. And all for, for what? To find fulfillment? To find purpose? To get a better paycheck so that we can have a a bigger house, a nicer car, a better vacation. What is here today is gone tomorrow. You see, what we seek out is meaningfulness in these things that are temporal and fleeting. And all these things we, we bend our minds and our time and our bank accounts and our priorities to. And that they can so easily just in an instant be taken from us. We consume our lives on things that really don't matter, and we do this around trying to find meaning in life. All of a sudden, the words of Ecclesiastes aren't a foreign concept, but a true reality. And as we become consumed with the meaningless things of life, we find ourselves blinded by this meaninglessness by saying that it does give us meaning in life. We know that God has a higher calling for us. We know that we have an opportunity to follow the one who spoke life into existence. We know that God desires to do great things in us and through us. We know that there is this great kingdom of God that that we can be a part of in this world. We know, we know, we know, we know, but we're too busy building our lives around tomorrow and the next day. And ten years down the road, all things that will not matter in an instant. How much of our life of this great work do we bend our time and priorities to? How much of our time and our money and our priorities do we give the things that seem so important to us, though if we were honest, they are really selfish and pointless in the wrong way? We waste our lives complaining and bellyaching, acting like the victims and talking about others. We spend so much time entertaining ourselves with endless hours of sports and media and TV show and social medias that have no direct impact or purpose in our lives. We waste our lives fighting about things that really won't matter in the long run. We give so much energy around negativity and criticism. We waste our lives procrastinating, living apathetic lives. All of a sudden, the words of Ecclesiastes come ringing in again and again and again. Meaningless. Ever met that person that has always ideas, always talks a big talk, but does nothing about it? We spend our lives around innocent and empty pursuits. We waste our lives doing the same thing day in and day out, expecting different results. The Greek mythology holds that there was a king named Sisyphus, and he is credited with being the wisest and the craftiest among all mortals, and he tricked the gods on more than one occasion, therefore the gods despised him. So when Sisyphus died for the second time, Zeus punished him by forcing him to roll up an immense boulder up a hill, only to watch it roll back again, repeating this action again and again for all eternity. He is told that if he simply gets that rock to the top of that hill, that his pain and his sorrow will cease. But for all eternity, the mythology would say, Sisyphus continues to push that boulder to the top, only to see it right near the edge fall back to the bottom again. If we swapped out Sisyphus for ourselves, what would that boulder be that we keep pushing to the top, only to see roll back again? What pleasure... 
toil, what foolishness or riches do we believe that we'll find his fulfillment, but in discovering that right at the crest of that hill, it slips from our grasp and comes tumbling down again. Maybe, just maybe, if we are honest enough with ourselves this morning, we can embrace the meaninglessness of the things that we have been pursuing. Maybe meaninglessness, everything is meaningless, makes more sense than we care to acknowledge. You see, too often we see the vanity in our goals and our priorities and our times and our pursuits when it's too late person on their deathbed regretting all the things they put so much time into and did not pour other things into. We spend a lifetime working, filling our schedules, buying this and buying that, doing this and doing that, and too often and it's in the end that we realize it's all for naught. One author wrote this beautiful poem, and I think it sums it up best. We are a shipwrecked people. Swamped by the raging seas, desperately we look for something to cling to, a plank of hope. We know that it's not in our money. We know that it's not in our fortune. We know that it's not in our good looks. We know that it's not in our family connection. We know it's not in our jobs. We have tried all those things, and we just find that we are sinking into the dark oceanic abyss. And so the question becomes, as we look at the words of Scripture and as we look within ourselves, is... What's next? You see, the writer of Ecclesiastes is skeptical. He is undone. He's in this faith crisis mode where he pulls out all the punches. He's letting God know how he feels about things. He's letting us know about how he feels about the world, the meaninglessness of it all. And he can't take it, and he's trying to absorb and find a new meaning in life. To this, he says, everything is meaningless. So if everything is meaningless, what are we supposed to do? I believe there's a couple options we can choose from. The first thing we could do is we can simply embrace the meaninglessness of pleasure, riches, toil, and make the conscious decision to keep living into that day after day after day. That's the easy option to do. That's what many of us do every single day. We simply find fulfillment in things that will never give us fulfillment. The second option is to get lost in the meaninglessness of it all. If all these things are meaningless, if this is no point to all of it, then why not just give it, why not just throw in the towel? Then there's the third option, which is to discover what genuine meaningfulness is. Jesus tells a story about a farmer who in one year triples his enterprise of his crop. I mean, he goes from being a small-time farmer to all of a sudden, overnight in one season, has this tremendous crop, this tremendous yield. And so he's sitting there looking at all of his crop, all of his surplus, and he's looking at his small, tiny barn, and he says, You know what I'll do? I'll tear down this small one, and I'll build bigger ones, and I'll fill them. And Jesus says that when he does this, he sits back and finds himself content in life for all that he has. But you remember the twist in the story. Jesus says that that night as he put his head down on his pillow to go to sleep, God came to him saying, Fool, tonight you will die. And your barn full of goods, who's going to get it? Jesus tells the feel-good story of the year, right? We often fail to see the context of Scripture because after telling this story, Jesus looks at the crowd of people and he tells them to watch out. Be 
on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Can you hear the echoes of Ecclesiastes 1? Everything is meaningless. In another instance, this rich young man comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? The literal translation is, What must I do to inherit life to the full? And what does Jesus say to him? You remember the story? Go sell everything you have. Give your money to the poor and then come follow me. In other words, if you want to find life to the full, then get rid of all of this stuff. Give it away and follow me. In the Gospels, Jesus is very interested in life, in our life. In fact, the word life is used more often in the scriptures than the word grace and love in the Gospels. Think about that for just a second. The life word that is used is zoe. It doesn't simply mean uh, making it or breathing. The word zoe means absolute fullness, life genuine, real life, life to the full. And Jesus gives us new perspective in life, saying things like this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life everlasting. The water I give will be a spring of what? Of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not go hungry. He who believes in me will not go thirsty. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of what? The light of life. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, though he may die. What reading the Gospels is not simply some throwaway statement from Jesus. We have to keep in mind that while Jesus walked on this earth for 33 years, he had three years of ministry. And so what that tells us is that Jesus was very intentional about the things that he said. There was never a throwaway, careless statement from Christ. Instead, what we see from Christ is very intentional words. And what comes out of his mouth is this idea that life matters. And the life we have been living can be meaningless, but the life we can find in Christ can be abundant. Ecclesiastes succeeds in telling us what is meaningless about life. Everything, right? Where Ecclesiastes fails, it also succeeds. Because where Ecclesiastes pushes down all the things in life, never giving us a true meaning of life, it sets up for the Gospels perfectly. It succeeds in that way. So one of the overwhelming perspectives and aspects of this pessimistic book is that it points us to the Gospels, this Gospel that is full of grace and love and life, meaningful life. Ecclesiastes points that all the pursuits and pleasures and toil and wealth, is point, Jesus points out that life in Christ is abundant and has abundant meaningfulness. So one question I want us to consider moving forward is this. If Jesus gives life abundantly, and if we claim to follow Jesus, yet we are seeking meaningless things in our life, are we truly finding the abundant life of Jesus? Let me repeat that. If we believe that Jesus gives life abundantly, and if we claim that we follow Jesus, yet we are seeking all this meaningless stuff in our lives, have we truly found the abundant life in Jesus? 
see, deep inside every one of us is a creature that desires more. We want more pleasure. We want more security. We want more comfort. We want answers. We want understanding. And because we want more, we complicate our lives, believing that more stuff, more activities, more resources, more things will give us true meaning in life. But true meaningfulness is actually quite simple. It's Jesus. And what we find in Jesus throughout the Gospels is Jesus telling people to give their stuff away to follow him. All four Gospels cover stories where Jesus tells people to give away work, to give away home, to give away family, to give away priorities, to give away comfort and resources to follow him. But of course, we dismiss these things altogether. Thinking that these verses and these commands were to a particular group of people, in a particular context, to a particular situation. And so, of course, Jesus wouldn't want us, he wouldn't want us to do the same, right? It's easy when we live in the wealthiest society that's ever walked the earth to not want to spiritualize Jesus' words. We want the blunt edge of Jesus' sharp rebuke of wealth and comfort and security so that we don't have to feel the prick on our skin. When in reality, Jesus' words should gouge us to the bone. Because our wealth, our love of money, our love of comfort, our love of meaningless things is just like this rich man who is not willing to give away all this stuff to find life to the full. Have we ever stopped to consider that maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about? Have we ever allowed it to register in our brains that the reason the Gospels tell us these stories with these specific words of Jesus is because they have profound meaning in our life? And are we willing to, just for a second... Consider for our lives that Jesus is calling us to do the same. Do we ever really consider that the Gospels are called good news for a reason? Jesus is inviting us into something better, more meaningful than what we can experience in all of these meaningless things we build up in our lives. And can we receive that as good news? And if we are willing to, to give away all these meaningless things, then we will discover the deep meaningfulness in Jesus. As far back as I can remember, um, I've been riding bicycles. I think I learned really quickly and really early on because I was the baby of three boys in the house and I did not want to be left behind when my two older brothers were doing stuff. So I'm pretty sure I bypassed a tricycle with the exception of my exceptional Rambo big wheel. Uh, Those things are awesome. I wish my weight could carry them. And and though I don't remember a time of of training wheels, I did have a time of training wheels, but I just love riding bikes. And and last summer I decided that uh, it was time for Madison to learn how to ride a bike. She was never really that interested in it before. We had a tricycle for her. She never really tried on it. She would get frustrated and stop and uh, just get real, just give up on it. And so last summer I decided that I was going to help her how to ride a bike. And I think part of it was she would see me go out and cycle for uh, a long period of time and, and loved riding my bike. And so uh, and I also bought Madison this um, ride behind companion cart. Have you seen this? Uh, and Aubriana and Madison would ride in it with me. And so finally we tried and tried and tried. And she got pretty good at it. And so we took her to the to the noose trail. And she started off great. Uh, she was steering and she was pedaling and she was really loving it. And then we hit our first hill. 
let's be honest, it was like a small gradual decline. And she hit that hill fast. And she didn't remember how we had showed her to use the brakes. And she went straight into the woods and fell off her bike. And once all the tears subsided, she refused to get back on her bike. In fact, we still have a hard time getting her back on her bike to try to ride it. For many of us, when we're willing to take serious the words of Jesus, the calling to find true meaning in Jesus, it's, it feels like this. It feels like we're starting off learning again. But what we need to learn about our spiritual lives, about following Christ, is we need the tricycle. We need the training wheels. Because it takes time to learn. But what happens when we fall off the first time? What happens when we come across that first challenging hill for the first time? For many of us, we get frustrated, we get irritated. We, we are too willing to give up and to live the way we were living life before. It's hard to discover a new way of living. A new way of finding deep meaningfulness in Christ instead of the meaningless stuff we pour into our life. It's tough work. It takes patience. It takes grit. It takes persistence. But more importantly, it takes faith in God and not in ourselves. It takes training. That's why Jesus invites us to follow him daily. Not just Sunday to Sunday, not when it's convenient. Discipleship is about putting in time, earnestness, and dedication to learn about following Jesus. Why else do you think it's so easy for everyone else to not follow Christ, to live comfortably? Do you find yourself finding excuses of why you can't make it on a Sunday? Why you can't serve the church. Why you can't be a part of a community group. Or why you can't even spend a few minutes in prayer each day. That's the old way of defining meaning creeping into you. Telling you that heading off for a long weekend is more important. That we should let other people do the work instead. That binge watching your favorite show is more important than spending an hour with people who want to love you and embrace you and affirm you. Investing in your faith doesn't matter. But it's tough work to let Jesus redefine what riches and pleasure means. It's easy to find new meaning in working and serving. It goes against the grain to let Jesus redefine everything in our lives. And if all this was easy, then everyone else would choose to follow Christ. Are you willing to trust in the God enough to discover a new way of seeing and living into deep meaningfulness? I read this parable recently I want to share with you. It goes like this. An American businessman was on a pier of a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellow tuna. The American complimented the Mexican fisherman on the quality of his fish and asked him how long it took him to catch them. The man replied, only a little while. The American then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch even more fish. I have enough to support my family, the fisherman said. The businessman asked him what he did with the rest of his time. The fisherman smiled and said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take a siesta with my wife, stroll into the village every evening where I sip on wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a full and busy life. 
Americans scoffed. I have a Harvard MBA, and I can help you. You should spend more time fishing, and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to the middleman, you would directly give to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the products and the processing and the distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City and then on to L.A. and eventually on to New York City where you would run your expanding enterprise. And the Mexican fisherman asked, but my friend, how long will this take? To which the American replied, 15 to 20 years. But then what? The fisherman asked. The American grinned and said, that's the best part. When the time is right, you announce an IPO, sell your company stock and make it go public, becoming a very rich man, a millionaire. A millionaire? But then what? The fisherman asked. The American said, then you would retire, move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your children, take a siesta with your wife, stroll in the village each evening where you would sip on wine and play your guitar with your friends. How long will we believe the lie that work and toil and pleasure and riches and security and comfort and the like will bring us real meaning in life? Maybe it's time to leave behind the meaninglessness and discover meaningfulness by following Jesus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.